heavy security around the Chinese embassy. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Enid Choi. Coming up, Erwin Sanf of Standard Chartered on the slowdown of the Chinese property market. Lars Nitva, head of M Plus, will talk about a new private donation that's going to help the museum fill its walls. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, calls in from Romania and India. One of the things which was really surprising about the past uh, government is they presided over the fastest economic growth in Indian history, but they never really made growth a priority. They almost took growth for granted. And so one thing I think you're going to see this new government do is really try to put the focus on growth, uh, and that is going to, I think, lead to some positive changes, but it's going to be a much more gradual recovery than what we've been anticipating. That's Milan Vezhnev of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace speaking on Bloomberg after Narendra Modi won the election in India on Friday. What should we make of Modi fever? I'll be chatting to Nisit Hajari of Bloomberg View about his economic plans later in the show. There have been a few interesting stories developing overnight. Deutsche Bank is planning to raise 8 billion euros to shore up capital, including selling a 1.75 billion euro stake to the Qatari royal family. Pfizer has made a final £69 billion offer for AstraZeneca. At £55 a share, it's a 15% increase from the previous bid. On another big megabucks M&A deal, AT&T agreed a few hours ago to buy DirecTV for about $48.5 billion. And this just in, the chairman of China Travel, Wang Shuiting, is under investigation by the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection for Suspected Serious Offences. Let's say hello now to RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Good morning, or good evening, rather. Oops, I think um, we haven't got Barry on the line yet. Sorry about that. Um, we're still waiting to see how Asian markets um, have opened. But um, looking at commodities, gold is down $2.3 at $1,291 an ounce. Oil is up again after last week's gains with Brent crude trading at $109.84 a barrel. The yen is trading down slightly against the dollar at 101.51 yen and the pound has gone up to 1.6825 to the dollar. And um, so let's take a look now um, at the stories that I mentioned earlier. Um, Deutsche Bank um, selling a big stake to the Qatari royal family. It's not the first time that the Qataris have invested in major international banks. It now holds stakes in Credit Suisse, Barclays, and also the Agricultural Bank of China. It's, Deutsche Bank is having to do this because it's um, it's facing a stress test, much like a lot of European banks. And um, it's planning to raise a total of 8 billion euros. Most of the money will come from a rights issue to existing shareholders. Let's um, say hello now to Erwin Samp of Standard Chartered while we wait for Barry on the line. Hi, good morning, Erwin. Yes, good morning. Welcome to the studio. So China's property market is causing um, quite a lot of concern these days because we've just had um, new data coming in showing the growth in average house prices has slowed again. So how bad are things going to be if the bubble bursts? But um, these days people are saying when more than if. 
Yeah, so, so this is the third downturn we've had uh, since the global financial crisis. And China's been able to move through previous downturns by easing credit, um, putting more liquidity into the system. Uh, the trouble this time around is the level of uh, debt across the economy has been going up every year and in recent years. And it's got to a point where, you know, that they could uh, step in and there is hope in the market that they will do something in the short term. But I think in the in our view, they're going to hold off because we haven't really seen any deleveraging or you know destocking uh, behaviour in the numbers we look at yet. So we think they'll hold off. Uh, things are likely to get worse um, through until at least fourth quarter this year. Do you think this is a time for investors to start looking at the stocks of large developers who may gobble up the small ones, the small ones in trouble, very cheaply? Yeah, so our recommendations across the market uh, remain the same as at the beginning of the year. We uh, worry about the new economy stocks being overvalued. And so when we look at these old economy sectors, we do find that the leading companies in each sector, you know, even though the overall economy is slowing, but the valuations for the best companies in each of these old economy sectors, including the property sector, look attractive. So mm. China Vanki, for example, uh, looks to be at a very interesting valuation level and a company that survived every downturn in the last 20 years and, and grown, you know, come out of the other end uh, larger than they uh, went into the downturn. Though, I mean, this particular um, bubble is nothing like anything that we've ever seen before, right? And it, if the bubble bursts, it's not going to be a problem just for property developers, but local government and, of course, the wider economy as a whole. Um, how, how worried are you that um, local governments are going to find themselves in, uh, in the, deeply in the red well, to the extent, you know, the overheated situation we see in parts of the market, I think we have seen that before. Uh, but uh, the point we would make is that not all the developers have been through such uh, downturns. So China Vanki is interesting that it, um, it's been through the uh, early 90s crash in uh, Chinese property market. It, it survived the uh, Asian financial crisis very well. And both those two periods actually were more challenging than the current period. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, for other developers that haven't have such a long uh, track record of listed history, it is probably quite challenging for them because when we look at balance sheets, uh, inventory levels, a lot of them um, have gone into this downturn in, not in great shape. So, Apart know, from yeah. Vanke, are there other mm. ones that you like? Well, we were su su well, pleasantly surprised uh, at the end of last week when uh, Sunak, one of the smaller developers, mm. stepped in to invest in Greentown. And, and that's really the measure of who's uh, doing well at the moment. Anyone who has that sort of balance sheet capacity left to take uh, – take up these opportunities as they present themselves. Um, and some of the big state-owned developers are like that as well, including China Overseas Land. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at the Chinese stock market in general. There's not a lot, not a lot of good news coming from there recently. CNL, the train maker, has just priced its um, $1.8 billion IPO near the bottom of the range. You know, and, of course, WH Group pulled their IPO earlier. So where do you see um, the Asia market going for the next few months? Well, well, until the government steps in to 
ease credit and push more liquidity into the economy, it's going to be very tough for the stock market overall to do much. Uh, but within that, I, I think the difficult problem is that the overall situation is reasonably well known and all the money has – uh, or the weightings that funds have have moved into these new economy sectors like internet, healthcare, environment, because they're perceived to be a, a little bit uh, counter-cyclical or uh, growing separately from the rest of the economy. I think the issue now is that uh, those sectors is where the risk is because the valuations have got up to levels we haven't seen before. Yeah, and of course we have Alibaba's massive IPO coming up. The interesting story in the Post today, a Subtime Morning Post today, saying that Beijing is going to ban foreign accountants, including Hong Kong ones, from auditing the books of mainland firms planning to list abroad. I mean, that's going to, well, raise a few eyebrows. Well, if companies are listing abroad, obviously the the rules uh, that have to be followed are in the exchanges uh, outside of China. Um, so we wouldn't take uh, t- too much notice of that. Uh, it's going to obviously uh, probably the accounting firms that get involved are from uh, both both sides of the fence. But do you think that um, Alibaba, if it's um, you know priced at the level that um, people are saying now, it may very well mark the peak of the current dot net bubble? Cycle well, we seem to have <laughs> we seem to have seen a peak already at the beginning of March. So it's um, we're, we're not looking for share prices in the sector to get back to that level. So mm. we, we think the peak's behind us. Um, it's just a case of um, how quickly these valuation levels get back to. You know, we, we agree that these these are growing areas of the economy. Uh, they deserve some premium to the market, but the premiums still today, uh, despite the correction we've had at a at still. An I mean, Facebook level. is still trading at a P ratio of hundred. I mean, it's staggering. Yeah, so earnings at some point have to start living up uh, to valuations. And generally, on that front, things have been disappointing. Earnings uh, have been growing, but not at the pace that the market predicted. Great. Thank you very much for coming to the studio today. That's Owen Sandbob, Standard Chartered Bank. And now, let's say hello to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Good morning. Good morning, Enid. Or rather, good good evening. Um, you are in Romania. I love the fact that you join <laughs> the you, you travel around the world and join the show from all sorts of places. Um, but um, first, let's review the economic data that have come out from the states in the last few days, shall we? Um, conf- latest one is consumer confidence. It's fallen unexpectedly in May uh, from a nine-month high. But we've had a, a, a real mix of, mix of negative and positive data in the last week. Um, but the, I suppose, baffling thing is that um, the dollar has fallen. The benchmark 10-year Treasury yield dipped below 2.5% on Thursday. It's gone up a little bit since. I mean, this is happening while the stock market keeps hitting record highs. I mean, how, how do you, how, what do you make of this? Well, I think you've uh, touched on an issue that is very important, and that is that the data is indeed very mixed in the United States. And I think a lot of the recent data is negative. You mentioned consumer confidence. That was not expected to have dropped in early May, and yet it did. We saw retail sales decline uh, really quite substantially. I mean, it had been up in uh, in, in earlier. Uh, we've seen jobs data that is quite good. But, you know, the more that uh, analysts looked at the job data, they saw so many people dropping out of the workforce mm. that uh, what seemed like good news has become a neutral. And, you know, if the U.S. stock market is really treading water, I mean, there wasn't much 
of a of a change in the past week. I think that we're stuck in a trend here that is going sideways. And I think the market is waiting to follow the economy. It's either going to go up or it's going to go down. But this can't go on indefinitely. I mean, on consumer confidence, people are getting a little bit worried about their household, household bills, aren't they? Especially with fuel and food prices going up. Is it mainly because wages in the U.S. just aren't keeping up, keeping pace with inflation? Is that what's happening? Absolutely. That is correct. You know, we don't have much inflation, despite the fact that we had some producer prices this past week that indicated there may be inflation ahead. Still, you've got year-over-year consumer price inflation in the States, Mm. you know, at well under 2%. And and many would say that it's well below the Fed target of 2%. So, you know, the, the pressures are not yet there in the labor market. And that has uh, meant that for most workers, there's been no increase in their salary. And that squeezes people. Yes, meat prices are higher. Gasoline prices have fluctuated, but generally been slightly higher. So I think there is uh, concern about what we thought was a pretty steady uptrend in the economy, now turning more sideways. And let's not forget, Enid, that if you look at the preliminary gross domestic product report for the first quarter, you saw absolutely anemic growth of 0.1% at an annual rate in the first three months of 2014. I mean, you were talking about the minimum wage debate earlier on Hong Kong today. Um, it's um, interesting that um, Switzerland has just voted down um, the, what would have been the world's highest minimum wage at 22 euros an hour. And you were saying earlier that that's three times the level in the U.S. Um, but have there been... <laughs> But, um, I mean, the, the level in the U.S. is still a lot higher than in Hong Kong, obviously. But um, has there been any, you know, the Republicans have been staunchly against the rise in the, the in minimum wage. But have they come up with any real evidence that um, doing such a thing, you know, raising minimum wage would really hurt the economy going forward? No, I think that's interesting and quite significant. There has been no data presented by the opponents to raising the minimum wage that say that in the current economy, a rise of, let's say, a dollar or even two dollars an hour sequenced in over, say, an 18 to 24 month period would have any negative impact on economic growth or on job creation. There is no evidence yet that would suggest that those people who are at the bottom of the economic ladder earning the minimum wage are going to be hurt by it. And I think by by a raise. And as a result of this um, seemingly growing protest by the fast food workers and Mm -hmm. the people who are in the back kitchens really is suggesting that this may be gathering momentum. Now, I know that um, you um, were reading um, an interesting interview with Tim Geithner by the FT yesterday. And um, you, it, it was an interesting interview because he's basically you know, blamed as the guy who introduced um, QE and um, you know, saw the U.S. through the worst moments of the financial crisis. And a lot of people thought that you know, the government didn't um, do, well, do that, handle that very well. What do you make of his defense in this FT interview? Well, I think it's quite impressive, and I think Martin Wolf, who clearly is the preeminent economics commentator 
in the English language globally think so as well. I, I recall uh, the writer Liaquat Ahmed grew up in, in Kenya, but he's long been in the States 30, 40 years. He wrote that book, go oh, about four years ago, called Lords of Finance. Mm-hmm. And Lords of Finance looked at the crisis of the 1920s and, and how that ultimately came to the Great Depression of the 1930s. And Ahmed said about a year ago, uh, in a conversation that I was part of, we should build monuments to these guys, Bernanke and Geithner. And I think that's really where Martin Wolf is coming from. I think that uh, Tim Geithner, who's only 52, and he's already out of government, Mm -hmm. Geithner has um, been a controversial figure because he was regarded in the States as really on the side of the banks, bailing out the banks. But I think in his book, he's making the case that at some point in a financial crisis like we had in 2007 and 8, you had to save the system. And you weren't necessarily bailing out the banks, you were bailing out the economy. Now that's a very tough argument to get across to people. And I think this book may have an impact. Obviously, I've not yet read it. I don't think really anybody has. Warren Buffett, I noticed, had an early advanced right. copy. <laughs> but I think this is going to be a significant, significant mm, book. Interesting. Now, um, before I let you go to enjoy the uh, local beverages, um, tell us a little bit about the, um, the mood in Eastern Europe. Well, that's very interesting indeed. Look, people here, Romania and Bulgaria, the two countries that I have been in over the past week, are desperately poor. Northwestern Bulgaria, where I've just crossed this new bridge over the Danube River, is the poorest region of any of the 28 members of the European Union. These are people who are getting by on about 200 euros per month. You really can't make ends meet. There's all kinds of things to buy in the shop. So a casual visitor comes through and says, you know, what's the problem? Well, the fact is that people don't have enough money to buy those goods. I was in a restaurant where people said, you know, they're not really ordering two meals for two people. They're ordering one and sharing it. They're not ordering liquor. They're ordering a soft drink and splitting that. So I think that um, they're happy they're not in the European monetary system because that's a kind of straitjacket that they don't need so sure. people here are suffering yeah this does give, just give us a sense of how far um, we have to go before we see the european economy fully recovering so thank you very much barry and enjoy the rest of the trip now let's say hello now to um, an expert on the indian election nisit hajari of bloomberg view who's based in singapore good morning nisit Thank you very much for joining the show. Now, I haven't seen a politician get this sort of um, you know, post-election victory welcome since Obama's first presidential campaign, right? Um, and a lot of um, the, the, the people in the business sector is hoping that Modi will replicate the so-called Gujarat magic across the nation. What exactly do they mean by that? 
Well, what they're talking about is the fact that uh, Gujarat State has consistently run growth rates higher than the national average uh, in the decade that Modi has been chief minister there. He's brought in infrastructure. He's brought in reliable power. Um, he's uh, improved irrigation for farmland. And particularly for big businessmen and foreign businessmen, um, it's just a very, very easy place to do business compared to the rest of India. You can come in and you can... Um, acquire land for big projects. You don't have to pay bribes. Um, again, this is this is the, the stereotype, the image of Gujarat. Um, is it the real image, though? Well, it's complicated. There are, um, there's plenty of statistics showing that while, uh, even before Modi took over for, for the past two or three chief ministers, Gujarat has consistently done well. It's one of the mm-hmm. most industrialized states in India. Um, and under Modi, uh, particularly in, in the first half of his term, um, social indicators, um, you know, maternal health, education, things like that were actually pretty bad uh, compared to the national average. So the growth, um, the benefits of growth were not trickling down uh, to the population at large. Hmm. So, so he's waged a very clever campaign to um, claim much credit. Um, now, the, um, to some extent, it's an election that was lost by the Congress party. The economy has been a real basket pace, right? case, uh, high inflation, low growth. And um, know, a lot of senior Indian executives I've spoken to basically say there's nothing Modi can do that can make things worse. <laughs> um, so what were the big economic mistakes that were committed by Memorandum Singh's government? Well, part of it was, um, it, it was, it was, there was policy paralysis. Uh, you know, after their first term, they came in with, um, in their second term with a, with a, you know, relatively large mandate. Uh, but then the, you know, the global economy started to turn south. Um, there had been some huge corruption scandals in the first term, which led to reforms that, you know, while, while good on the surface, also resulted in people in the bureaucracy just being too scared to make decisions about anything because they were afraid that they were going to be, uh, you know, called up by the courts or the press. Um, so a lot of stuff just got frozen uh, in, in the pipeline, a lot of projects. And um, then you had, uh, you know, continued spending on fuel subsidies and, and on make-work programs and, and so forth. Um, you know, it just it, it resulted in a kind of mood of gloom and, and, and nothing that the Congress said or did gave any indication that they had a real vision for um, how to change things. Now, I mean, the stock market and the rupee have been rallying um, long before the um, the election. And um, now the Sensex is standing at a new record high of over 25,000. The rupee is at a 10-month high at 58.9 rupees to a dollar. Um, will this be sustainable? Uh, the short answer is no. Hmm. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I think... I think uh, as large of a challenge for Modi initially, uh, you know, he's going to have to get projects restarted. He's going to have to, um, you know, uh, unclog the system. But he's also going to have to manage expectations because they're way too high. There's, there's, you know, sure a lot of, a lot of the, you know, even when you talk about, um, uh, you know, unblocking projects, you know, everyone says Modi's this incredibly decisive man who will, who will get things moving. Um, most of the reasons these projects are blocked have nothing to do with the central government. They're you know, land issues that are um, in control of state governments. So mm-hmm. he's going to have to build alliances with people who aren't necessarily of his same party um, and, and in order to get these, uh, you know, his, his priorities through. And uh, are there going to be likely conflicts between the new government and the newish central bank governor, Raghuram Rajan, one, the one-time chief economist at the IMF, and who's been rather hawkish? 
He has, and there will obviously be political pressure, uh, you know, on him to 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 change that stance. But Modi himself has said, I believe that that he plans to keep Rajan in place, and I think he's smart enough uh, to know that that. Um, you know, Rajan is one of the best things that's happened to India in the last year. Um, he's really restored confidence. At, you know, the, when he came into office, um, you know, the rupee was was plummeting in value, and, and he's really turned things around. I think it would be foolish for um, for you know, a new government to, to make any immediate changes there. And we can't really talk about Modi without talking about BJP's um, Hindu nationalist agenda, especially since Modi was um, widely blamed for failing to stop the 2002 riots in Gujarat, which killed a lot of Muslims. Um, is, um, do, do, you, do you think this is going to be the one thing in his um, term that's um, going to keep the country divided? Well, I think if he's able to, if, if he first of all fulfills his promises and concentrates on development and growth and not divisive social issues, um, and then if he's successful, if he is able to get the economy moving again, um, I think that will um, paper over a lot of these divisions. You know, if, if jobs are being created uh, for Muslims as well as Hindus, then uh, you know you have much less of an issue. The danger is going to come if. Um, if he can't get the economy moving, if the you know global headwinds are too strong, and and if um, disappointment starts to set in and resentment, and then it becomes very easy to look for other scapegoats to find you know international um, uh, conflicts to to uh, pursue or internal mm. ones. Great, thank you very much for joining our case Money for Nothing. That's Nisid Hajari of Bloomberg View in Singapore. Let's say hello now to Lars Nitver, the Executive Director of M Plus. Good morning, Lars. Good morning, Enid. Thank you very much for joining the show. Um, we've had a lot of you know, macroeconomic talk on this show so far, so it's nice to be able to switch to uh, something entirely different. Um, now, I want to ask you about this $5 million Hong Kong dollars fund that M-Plus has just received, um, split over 10 years, um, to buy art. The, the, the donor is local artist Rosamund Brown, who is, of course, the mother of Ben Brown, the well-known gallery owner. So what are you going to do with that money? Uh, will buy art, of course, uh, and we started out very well uh, on the first day of the fair uh, this year, uh, and we bought, acquired actually five works of art by four different artists uh, that goes into the M Plus collection. So, and we're going to do this once a year when the art fair opens here. We will have a little team of uh, two curators from M Plus and two outside curators who will make a selection of one work or a group of works, depending on what they find interesting. So why did um, the Brown family front insist on you using the money, money just at Art Basel every year? I, th- I think they, they wanted to do something that was very concrete and not so uh, arbitrary, just they wanted to see the results, I think, and also... It gives clearly, obviously, it gives also some recognition to the donation, which might inspire other donors. And I think they also wanted to set an example in a way, so and make it visi- make it more visible. So you know, you this this five million dollars is split over ten years, and so w- the, the money that you haven't spent this year, will you, will you be investing it actively? Uh, I think. Uh, we will probably invest it as, as we do with other other all all the West Kowloon monies, which are of course also invested. So we will keep them in, but in a special pocket, so to say. So who but manages who manages that money? All the money on this side. Sorry? Who, who manages that money for you for for West Kowloon? Uh, it, we 
manage it ourselves. There's an investment committee within mm. the West Kowloon Board, and um, it's being managed uh, by them. Right. Okay. Thank you very much for joining the show. But before I go, last important question: When will M Plus open its doors? Uh, end of 2017. We're on track. We're on budget, and we haven't compromised anything. So this Good is to the know. schedule since three years back. Thanks, Lars. Thank That's you. Lars Nitve, Executive Director of M Plus. We've um, unfortunately come to the end of today's show. Before I go, the weather. It will be mainly cloudy with a few showers and thunderstorms. Maximum temperature is 30 degrees and the weather will stay unsettled in the next few days. I also um, should um, tell you that the Nikkei has opened up 0.2%. It's now at 14,123. Australian market is down 10 points at 5,448. And the Soul market is down seven points at 2006. Thank you for listening to Money for Nothing. This is Enid Cho. It's time for the news with Janice Wong. Turkish prosecutors have charged three people with negligence and causing deaths in connection with the country's worst mining disaster. 301 people died at a Soma coal mine last Tuesday after an explosion and fire. At a news conference, the prosecutor Bakir Sahina said several people were responsible for the tragedy. According to the prosecution and experts' inspection of the mine, those who were found to be at fault and negligent were the technical supervisor of the mine, the operations manager, the field owner, the chief engineer for work safety, the chairman of the board and shift supervisors. They have been deemed suspects by our prosecutors based on the experts' preliminary report and the orders to detain them have